The text explained. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Proverbs chapter 4 verse 23. The heart of man is his worst part before it is regenerated and the best part afterward. It is the seat of principles and the fountain of actions. The eye of God is, and the eye of the Christian should be, principally fixed upon it. The greatest difficulty in conversion is to win the heart to God. The greatest difficulty after conversion is to keep the heart with God. Here lies the very force and stress of religion. Here is that which makes the way to life a narrow way, and the gate of heaven a narrow gate. Direction and help in this great work are the scope of the text wherein we have an exhortation, keep thy heart with all diligence, the reason or mode of enforcing it, for out of it are the issues of life. In the exhortation we will consider the matter of the duty, the manner of performing it. The matter of the duty. Keep thy heart. Heart, in this case, does not refer to the noble part of the body which philosophers call the first that lives and the last that dies. Rather, it is a metaphor which the Scripture sometimes uses that represents some particular noble faculty of the soul. In Romans chapter 1, verse 21, it is used for the understanding. Their foolish heart, that is, their foolish understanding, was darkened. In Psalm 119, verse 11, it is used for the memory. Thy word have I hid in mine heart. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 20, it is used for the conscience, which includes both the light of the understanding and the recognitions of the memory. If our heart condemns us, that is, if our conscience, whose proper responsibility it is to condemn. But in the text, we are to take it more generally for the whole soul or the inner man. What the heart is to the body, the soul is to the man. What health is to the heart, holiness is to the soul. The state of the whole body depends upon the soundness and vigor of the heart, and the everlasting state of the whole man depends upon the good or ill attitude of the soul. By keeping the heart, we mean the diligent and constant use of all holy means to preserve the soul from sin, and maintain its sweet and free communion with God. I say constant, for the reason added in the text extends the duty to all of the states and attitudes of a Christian's life, and makes it always binding. If the heart must be kept, because out of it are the issues of life, then as long as these issues of life flow out of it, we are obliged to keep it. Johann Caspar Lavater's take on the text has the word taken from a besieged garrison, overwhelmed by many enemies on the outside and in danger of being betrayed by treacherous citizens on the inside, in which danger the soldiers, upon pain of death, are commanded to watch. Though the expression, keep thy heart, seems to say it is our work, it does not imply a sufficiency in us to do it. We are as able to stop the sun in its course or to make the rivers run backward by our own will and power as to rule and order our hearts. We may as well be our own saviors as our own keepers. And yet Solomon speaks properly enough when he says, Keep thy heart, because the duty is ours, though the power is of God. What power we have depends upon the exciting and assisting strength of Christ. 
grace within us, is bound to grace outside of us. Without me ye can do nothing. John chapter 15 verse 5. So much for the matter of the duty. The manner of performing the heart is with all diligence. The Hebrew is very emphatic. Keep with all keeping, or keep, keep. Set double guards. This vehemence of expression with which the duty is urged plainly implies how difficult it is to keep our hearts and how dangerous it is to neglect them. The motive for this duty is very forcible and weighty. For out of it, the heart are the issues of life. In other words, the heart is the source of all vital operations. It is the spring and origin of both good and evil, just as the spring in a watch that sets all the wheels in motion. The heart is the treasury, the hand and tongue are but the shops. What is in these comes from that. The hand and tongue always begin where the heart ends. The heart contrives and the members execute. Scripture A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good, and an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaketh. Luke chapter 6 verse 45. So then, if the heart errs in its work, these must miscarry in theirs. For heart errors are like the errors of the first concoction, which cannot be corrected afterward. Or like the misplacing and inverting of the stamps and letters in the printing press, which must cause so many typographical errors in all the copies that are printed. Oh, then, how important a duty is contained in the following. Proposition The keeping and correct managing of the heart in every respect is the great task of a Christian's life. What the philosopher says of water is properly applicable to hearts. It is hard to keep it within any bounds. God has set limits to our hearts, yet how frequently do they transgress not only the bounds of grace and religion, but also even the bounds of reason and common honesty. This is what the Christian must labor at and watch for to his dying day. Washing the hands does not make the Christian. Many hypocrites can show a hand as clean as his. It is the purifying, watching, and right ordering of the heart that makes the Christian. This is what provokes so many sad complaints and causes so many deep groans and tears. It was the pride of Hezekiah's heart that made him lie in the dust mourning before the Lord, 2 Chronicles 32, verse 26. It was the fear of hypocrisies invading the heart that made David cry, Let my heart be sound in thy statutes, that I be not ashamed. Psalm 119, verse 80. It was the sad experience he had of the divisions and distractions of his own heart in the service of God that made him pour out the prayer, Unite my heart to fear thy name. Psalm 86, verse 11. The method in which I propose to improve the proposition is this. 1. I will inquire what the keeping of the heart supposes and means. 2. I will assign various reasons why Christians must make this a priority of their lives. 3. I will point out those seasons which especially call for this diligence in keeping the heart. 4. I will apply all of this to the heart. Duties Included in Keeping the Heart First, 
I will consider what the keeping of the heart supposes and means. To keep the heart necessarily supposes a previous work of regeneration, which has set the heart right by giving it a new spiritual inclination. If the heart is not set right by grace to be its habitual frame, no means of effort can keep it right with God. Self is the spring of the unrenewed heart, which biases and moves it in all its designs and actions. As long as self controls the heart, it is impossible that any external means can keep it with God. Man was originally of one constant uniform frame of spirit and held one straight and even course. Not one thought or faculty was disordered. His mind had a perfect knowledge of the requirements of God, and his will was in perfect compliance. All of his appetites and powers stood in obedient subordination to God. Man, by the apostasy, has become a very disordered and rebellious creature, opposing his Maker as the first cause by self-dependence, as the chief good by self-love, as the highest Lord by self-will, and as the last end by self-seeking. Thus man is quite disordered, and all his actions are irregular. But by regeneration the disordered soul is set right. This great change being, as the Scripture expresses it, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, the renovation of the soul after the image of God, in which self-dependence is removed by faith, self-love is removed by the love of God, self-will is removed by subjection and obedience to the will of God, and self-seeking is removed by self-denial. The darkened understanding is illuminated, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. The refractory will is sweetly subdued, Psalm 110, verse 3, and the rebellious appetite is gradually conquered, Romans chapter 6, verse 7. Thus the soul which was universally depraved by sin is restored by grace. This being presupposed, it will not be difficult to understand what it is to keep the heart, which is nothing but the constant care and diligence of the renewed man to preserve his soul in that holy frame to which it has been raised by grace. For though grace has, in a great measure, rectified the soul and given it a habitual heavenly temper, sin often actually derails it again, so that even a gracious heart is like a musical instrument, which even though it is exactly tuned, a small matter brings it out of tune again. Put it aside for a little while, and it will need tuning again before another lesson can be played upon it. If gracious hearts are in a desirable frame in one aspect, they can be dull, dead, and disordered in another aspect. Therefore, every aspect needs a particular preparation of the heart. Scripture If thou prepare thine heart, and stretch out thine hands toward him, if iniquity be in thine hand, put it far away, and let not wickedness dwell in thy tabernacles. For then shalt thou lift up thy face without spot, Yea, thou shalt be steadfast, and shalt not fear. Job chapter 11, verse 13. To keep the heart, then, is to carefully protect it from sin, which disorders it, and maintain that spiritual frame which fits it for a life of communion with God. This includes six specific preparations. 1. It requires frequent observation of the frame of the heart. Carnal and formal people do not pay attention to this they cannot be brought to confer with their own hearts. There are some people who have lived forty or fifty years 
and have had scarcely one hour's discourse with their own hearts. It is a hard thing to bring a man and himself together to do this. But Christians know those soliloquies are very beneficial. The heathen could say, The soul is made wise by sitting still in quietness. Though bankrupt hearts do not care to investigate their accounts, upright hearts will know whether they are going backwards or forwards. I commune with mine own heart, David said, Psalm 77, verse 6. The heart can never be kept until its attitude is examined and understood. 2. It includes deep humiliation for heart evils and disorders. Thus Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, 2 Chronicles 32, verse 26. Thus the people were ordered to spread forth their hands to God in prayer, realizing the plague of their own hearts, 1 Kings 8, verse 33. For this reason, many upright hearts have been laid low before God. Oh, what a heart I have! Christians have in their confession pointed at their hearts the pained place and said, Lord, here is the wound. It is with the well-kept heart as it is with the eye. If a speck of dust gets into the eye, it will never stop blinking and watering until it has been cried out. Just so, the upright heart cannot be at rest until it has cried out its troubles and poured out its complaints before the Lord. 3. It includes earnest supplication and instant prayer for purifying and rectifying grace when sin has defiled and disordered the heart. Scripture Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Psalm 30, verse 12. Unite my heart to fear thy name. Psalm 86, verse 11. Christians have always made many such petitions before the throne of God's grace. This is what they plead for most from God. When they are praying for outward mercies, perhaps their spirits are more remiss. But when it comes to the heart's case, they extend their spirits to the utmost, fill their mouths with arguments, weep, and humbly ask, O for a better heart, O for a heart to love God more, to hate sin more, to walk more evenly with God. Lord, do not deny me such a heart. Whatever you do, deny me. Give me a heart to fear you, to love and delight in you. It is observed of an eminent saint that when he was confessing sin, he would never stop confessing until he had felt some brokenness of heart for that sin. And when praying for any spiritual mercy, he would never stop until he had obtained some taste of that mercy. 4. It includes the imposing of a strong obligation upon us to walk more carefully with God and avoid situations where the heart may be tempted to sin. Well-advised and deliberate vows are in some cases very useful to guard the heart against some special sin. I made a covenant with mine eyes, Job chapter 31, verse 1. By this means devout men have inhibited their souls and preserved themselves from sinning. 5. It includes a constant and holy protection of our own hearts. Quick-sighted self-protection is an excellent preservative from sin. He who will keep his heart must have the eyes of the soul awake and open to all of the disorderly and tumultuous stirrings of his affections. If the affections break loose and the passions are stirred, the soul must discover it and suppress them before they rise up. 
O my soul, do you do well in this? My tumultuous thoughts and passions, where is your commission? Happy is the man that always fears this way. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 14. It is by this fear of the Lord that men resist evil, shake off laziness, and preserve themselves from iniquity. He who will keep his heart must eat and drink with fear. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Rejoice with fear. Psalm 2, verse 11 and pass the whole time of his life here in holy fear. 1 Peter 1, verse 17 All of this is little enough to keep the heart from sin. 6. It includes realizing God's presence with us and always putting the Lord before us. People have found this to be a powerful means of keeping their hearts upright and away from sin. When the eye of our faith is fixed upon the eye of God's omniscience, we do not dare to give our thoughts and affections to vanity. Job did not dare to allow his heart to yield to an impure, vain thought. What was it that moved him to so great caution? He tells us in Job chapter 31, verse 4, Doth not he see my ways and count all my steps? In such specifics as these, gracious souls express the care they have for their hearts. They are careful to prevent the breaking loose of the corruptions in time of temptation, careful to preserve the sweetness and comfort they have gotten from God in any duty. This is the work, and of all works in religion, it is the most difficult, constant, and important work. 1. It is the hardest work. Hard work is indeed hard work. To shuffle over religious duties with a loose and heedless spirit will cost no great pains. But to set yourself before the Lord and tie up your loose and vain thoughts to a constant and serious attention upon Him, this will cost you something. To attain a facility and dexterity of language in prayer and put your meaning into apt and decent expressions is easy. But to get your heart broken for sin while you are confessing it, melted with free grace while you are blessing God for it, to be really ashamed and humbled through the sincere understanding of God's infinite holiness, and to keep your heart in this frame, not only in but also after duty, will surely cost you some groans and pains of your soul. To repress the outward acts of sin and compose the external part of your life in a laudable manner is no great matter. Even carnal people, by the force of common principles, can do this. But to kill the root of corruption within, to set and keep up a holy control over your thoughts, to have all things lie straight and orderly in the heart, this is not easy. 2. It is a constant work. The keeping of the heart is a work that is never done until life is ended. There is no time or attitude in the life of a Christian which will allow an intermission of this work. It is in keeping watch over our hearts, as it was in keeping up the hands of Moses while Israel and Amalek were fighting. Exodus chapter 17, verse 12. No sooner did the hands of Moses grow heavy and sink down than Amalek prevailed. Pausing the watch over their own hearts for but a few minutes cost David and Peter many sad days and nights. 3. It is the most important work of a Christian's life. Without this, we are but formalists in religion. 
All our professions, gifts, and duties signify nothing. My son, give me thine heart, is God's request. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 26. God is pleased to call that a gift, which is indeed a debt. He will put this honor upon the creature, to receive it from him in the way of a gift. But if this is not given to him, he regards nothing else you bring to him. There is only so much of worth in what we do for God as there is of heart in it. Concerning the heart, God seems to say, as Joseph said of Benjamin, Ye shall not see my face, except your brother be with you. Among the heathen, when the beast was cut up for sacrifice, the first thing the priest looked at was the heart. If the heart was unsound and worthless, the sacrifice was rejected. God rejects all duties, however glorious in other respects, which are offered to him without the heart. He who performs a duty without the heart, that is, heedlessly, is no more accepted by God than he who performs it with a double heart, that is, hypocritically. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 3. Thus, I have briefly considered what the keeping of the heart supposes and means.